Hey, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? I so appreciate you being here this morning. I know something really important is happening at 12 noon, and uh, so I have I hadn't forgotten that. Amen. And if you don't know what that is, then don't worry about it. <laughs> Amen. What's happening at noon? Well, if you if you if it's not a, you don't know about it, it's okay. Uh, I've been doing my series on heaven, and I've been teaching out of a book that I came across called Imagine Heaven. And we sold 50 of them at the Red Desk. Many of you have it and are reading it. And we've looked at the wonder and the beauty of heaven. We've looked at the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a little bit different turn. You heard Kurt say, uh, people who've had near-death experiences, there are as many negative near-death experiences where people actually experience hell. And so I wanted to take a Sunday and look at two of those stories Now, here's the first thing that I want you to know as we get into these two stories, okay? Preaching on hell never scared anyone into heaven, okay? And that's not my heart this morning, okay? I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I never have been. And uh, the Bible says to taste and see that the Lord is good, okay? That's what draws you to heaven. That's what draws you to Jesus is his goodness. And so that's that's not what this is about. Here's the other thing you're going to see. As we go through these two stories, these two men, one's a doctor and uh, one is a professor. And you're going to see every step of the way as they have these experiences, you're going to see the grace of God. You're going to see the love of God. You're going to see the mercy of God. Now, that's what I want you to focus on this morning. These people have two dark experiences, but even in these experiences, God's goodness and God's grace is there. So let me begin with the first one. This is Dr. Maurice Rawlings. He did not believe in God or the afterlife when he had this experience in 1977. While doing a stress test on a 40-year-old man, this man had a cardiac arrest and dropped dead in the doctor's office. Three nurses rushed in and began CPR while Dr. Rawlings started external heart massage on his heart. Here's what he says. I had to insert a pacemaker wire into the large vein, and the patient began coming too. But whenever I would reach for instruments or otherwise interrupt my compressions on his chest, he would lose consciousness, stop breathing, and die once more. Each time he regained his heartbeat and respiration, he screamed this to me. I'm in hell. He was terrified and pleaded with me to help him. I was scared to death. In fact, this episode literally scared the hell right out of me. After several resuscitation uh, attempts, the man pleaded, Don't you understand? I'm in hell. Each time you quit, I go back to hell. Don't let me go back to hell. I dismissed his complaint and told him to keep his hell to himself until I finished getting the pacemaker into place. But the man was serious and wouldn't stop. How do I stay out of hell? Pray for me, he begged. Pray for me. What nerve, I thought. I told him, I'm a doctor, not a preacher. Pray for me, he repeated. It was a dying man's man's request. So Dr. Rawlings drew on the little bit of Sunday school he remembered. Now, we'll stop right there. In these two stories, what you're going to see in common in these two men is they went back to their Sunday school experience. They went back to when they were children and they heard Bible stories. They go back to remembering hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ as children. And I want to really take a moment and emphasize that point. There's nothing more powerful that we do at Tulia Christian Fellowship than power kids in Ground Zero. 
There's nothing more powerful than we do than to share the gospel with kids. Listen, we have two things that we want to happen in Ground Zero and Power Kids every week. We want children and teenagers to know, number one, that Jesus Christ loves them and that they know the name of Jesus. The second thing we want them to know is that they're loved by us. Now, bring this into your home. There's nothing more powerful than you sharing with your children and your grandchildren about Jesus Christ and about his love. And that's exactly what this man does. He goes back to that experience. Let me continue to read. Even if he didn't believe it himself, that's interesting. He doesn't believe it. He had this man repeat after him while he continued working on him. Now, this guy's not a Christian, and then he leads this guy to Christ. Listen to what he does. Here's what he tells him. Lord Jesus, I ask you to keep me out of hell. This guy repeated it. Forgive my sins. He repeated it. I turn my life over to you. He repeated it. If I die, I want to go to heaven. He repeated it. If I live, I'm on the hook forever. And he repeated it. The patient's condition stabilized. A couple of days later, Dr. Rawlings asked the patient to explain if he saw anything in hell. Here's what he said. The patient could not recall any of the unpleasant events, only the pleasant ones after he had prayed. Apparently, the experience of hell was so frightening that he suppressed it into his subconscious. He could not recall anything except this. After he prayed the prayer, he recalls standing in the back of the room, watching the doctor work on his body on the floor. He also recalled meeting his deceased mother and stepmother during one of the death episodes. This experience was very pleasurable after he divided Christ into his life. He was in a narrow valley with lush vegetation and brilliant light. And he saw his birth mother for the first time. Here's what's interesting. His mother died at 21 when he was 15 months old. And after he received Christ, he saw his mother and his stepmother. Now, this experience transformed Dr. Rawlings' life, and he wrote a book, and he did research, and there's a book that you can get called Beyond Death's Door, and it completely changed his life. Let me read a statement to you. We live in a world where we taste heaven, God's love and goodness. We also can taste hell, the absence of God and his ways. All right, now leave that quote up for just a minute. You and I know it's so true, isn't it? Listen, I've experienced hell in my life. When my father passed away when I was 18, that was a hellish experience, if you will. Many of you have experienced hellish events, but we've also experienced amazingly heavenly events in this life. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. God finds no joy or pleasure in sending anyone to hell. That's not God's heart. Okay, I want to read you a verse out of Matthew, Matthew 25, 41, and here's what it says. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Listen, hell was not prepared for people. Hell was prepared for the devil and for his angels. And I want you to understand that. Listen to this next quote. If you go to hell, earth is the only heaven you will ever know. If you go to heaven, earth is the only hell you will ever know. Uh, Vicki and I have laughed many times 
Uh, when, when we were, when Vicky was younger, when she was growing up, and even after we were young married, you know, you know, people would say something about going to hell, and Vicky's mother would always say, I'm not going to hell, I'm in hell, okay? And she was referring to being a mother and having to try to control Vicky, right, okay? I, I'm, only, I'm only kidding, okay? Uh, probably, and, and you felt like that before. We've had those experiences where you've had experiences that felt, felt like hell. But what I want you to know is when you get to heaven, that's the only hell you'll ever know. Let me read you one more thought. God sends no one to hell. Hell is God giving free eternal creatures what they want, and that's freedom from him. Leave that up, please. When I was in the general business many years ago, one of my accounts was J.C. Penney's in Plainview, and I would go every Monday, and I would sweep and mop their floors and then buff them with a machine to make them shiny before customers came in. And they had managers who would come in from all over the country who were managers there. And there was a manager at that time who was from up east. He wasn't from the Bible Belt. And so I would be there in the morning with him, and he and I would always begin to talk and get into conversations. And here's what he said to me one day. He said, this is one of the most religious towns I've ever lived in. He's talking about Plainview. And he said, and the newspaper here has more articles about Jesus and about church than it does about news. And so we begin to talk, and I begin to explain to him, well, you live in the Bible Belt. And uh, in the Bible Belt, it's not like up in the east. I've never lived up there, but we talk about that a lot. And then I begin to share the gospel with him, and I begin to ask him if he knew Christ as his Savior. And here's what he told me. He said, I don't understand how you can believe that God would create humanity and then send them to hell for all of eternity. And then I begin to explain to him about the love of Jesus Christ, and that was not God's heart. And that's what this quote says. God sends no one to hell. Hell is God giving free eternal creatures what they want, and that's freedom from him. The next story I want to share with you is a man named Howard Storm, and he's an art professor. And listen to what he says. He's a professor of art at Northern Kentucky University. He was taking students on a tour of Paris museums when he had a stomach ulcer begin to bleed. Little did he know, but from the time of his perforation, his life expectancy was typically five hours. The hospital had only one surgeon on duty that weekend, so he and his wife, Beverly, had to wait. Ten hours later, a nurse informed them that the doctor had gone home and they would have to wait till morning. Howard had fought to stay alive, but now he had no strength left. I knew I was dying, he says. Fighting against a flood of tears, I told my wife that I loved her very much. I told her it was over, and we said our goodbyes. I knew for certain that there was no such thing as life after death. Only simple-minded people believed in sort of thing. I didn't believe in God or heaven or hell or any such fairy tales. He closed his eyes and passed away. He expected oblivion, but instead he found himself standing next to his bed with his eyes open. Could this be a dream, I kept thinking? This has got to be a dream. I knew that it wasn't. I was aware. I felt more alert, more aware, more alive than I've ever felt in my entire life. All my senses were extremely vivid. As I bent over to look at the face of the body in the bed, I was horrified to see it was me. It was impossible that this could be happening to me. I was standing over my body and looking at it. I had never felt more alert, more conscious. I wanted desperately to get through to my wife. I want to read to you out of 2 Corinthians 5, 4. 
I use this verse when I do funerals. If you've ever attended a funeral that I've done, you've heard this verse. Listen to what it says. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies, another word, an easy way to say it is these decaying bodies. Another way to say it is age. All right, you may say, you're sitting here this morning, you think I'm not dying. Well, you're not dying, but you are aging. And because you're aging, you're decaying, okay? Now, your decay is not as evident at 30 as it is at 60, but it's coming. Amen? Amen. All right, let me continue. All right, so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. Notice the last few words in that statement. It says that when we die, what happens to us? You're swallowed up by life. That's exactly what he says in this story. Listen to what he said. I felt more alive, more aware, more alert than I've ever felt in my entire life. When he stepped out of his body, he was swallowed by life, not by death. So many times we worry when people die. Well, what happened to them? Well, I tell you what happened to them. They were swallowed by life. Well, you know, my mother suffered with cancer. Now, I'm talking about me. My mother suffered with cancer. And when she passed away in that nursing home in Hollis, Oklahoma, she was swallowed by life. Let me continue reading. He says, I began to try to get my wife's attention. I screamed at her, but she sat frozen in the chair next to the bed. I raged at her, but she ignored me. Off in the distance outside in the room, I heard voices calling me. Howard, Howard, they were calling. They were pleasant voices. They were male and female, young and old. And they called me in English. No one in the hospital staff spoke English. Come out here, they said. Let's go. Hurry up. We've been waiting for you for a long time. Here's what he says to them. I can't. I'm sick. I need an operation. Now, here's the next thing I want you to see that I find so amazing. Okay, he he dies. His heart is stopped. He has slipped out of his body, the real him, his spirit man. And he's so comfortable being outside of his body that he tries to talk to his wife who's in the, in the physical realm, and she can't hear him. Then he also is so comfortable, he still thinks something's wrong with him. Not that he's in pain, because he says he's more alive than he's ever been. But he tells these voices, I can't go with you, I need surgery. So I think one of the most amazing things about this is he's himself He's fully aware, he's fully alive, he's full of energy and insight, and he's so at home that he he almost doesn't recognize that he's not in his body anymore. Let me continue to read. We can get you fixed up, the voices said, if you hurry up. Don't you want to get better? Don't you want help? I was in an unknown hospital in a foreign country in an extremely bizarre situation, and I was afraid of those people calling me. They were irritated by my questions which were only attempts to find out who they were. We can't help you if you don't come on. I stepped into the hall, and I was full of anxiety, and the area had been lit but was very hazy, two important points. All the near-death experiences we've talked about these last few weeks where people went to heaven, they immediately stepped into a beautiful, bright light. What did they have on them? They had two things on them. They had peace, and they had love. He steps into a hazy light, and he doesn't have peace or love. It says that he has anxiety. It was like a plane passing through thick clouds. The people were in the distance, and I couldn't see very clearly, but I could tell that they were male and female. They were tall and short, and they were adults. As I tried to get close to them to identify them, they withdrew deeper into the fog. 
So I had to follow further and further into the thick atmosphere. I could never get closer than 10 feet, and I had a lot of questions. Every time I hesitated, they would demand that I keep up. They continued to repeat the promise that if I followed them, my troubles would end. We walked on and on, and my repeated inquiries were rebuffed. I knew that we had traveled for miles, but I had the strange ability to occasionally look back and see through the doorway of the hospital room. Beverly was sitting there as frozen as she had been when this experience began. It seemed many miles away, but I could still see her in the distance. I also couldn't make out how much time was passing. There was a profound sense of timelessness. I kept asking when we were going to get there. I'm sick, I said. I can't do this. They became increasingly angry and sarcastic. If you'd quit moaning and groaning, we'd get there. The more questioning and suspicious I became, the more antagonistic they became. What was increasingly clear to me is they were deceiving me. The longer I stayed with them, the further away escape became. They began shouting and hurling insults at me, demanding that I hurry along. The more miserable I became, the more they enjoyed it. A terrible sense of dread was coming over me. This experience was too real. In some ways, I was more aware and sensitive than I'd ever been. When I looked around, I was horrified to discover that we were in complete darkness. Listen to what Matthew 25, 30 says. Jesus himself is speaking. He says, throw the useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, is, this phrase is used three times in the New Testament. It says that if we're not a follower of Christ, that we're to be thrown into outer darkness. And then he describes in this story right here, I was horrified by the complete darkness. The hopelessness of my situation overwhelmed me. I told them I could go no further and to leave me alone. Then they begin to push and shove me. I begin to fight back. A wild frenzy of taunting, screaming, and hitting ensued. I fought like a wild man. As I swung and kicked at them, they bit and tore me. All the while, it was obvious that they were having great fun, even though I could not see anything in the darkness. I was aware that there were dozens or even hundreds of them all around and over me. My attempts to fight back only provoked them. Every new assault brought howls of laughter. They began to tear off pieces of me. To my horror, I realized I was being torn apart and eaten alive for their entertainment. These creatures were once humans, I thought. The best way I can describe them is to think of the worst imaginable person stripped of every bit of their compassion. They were a mob of beings driven by cruelty. In that darkness, I had intense physical contact with them when they swarmed over me. Eventually, I became too torn up and too broken to resist. Most of them gave up tormenting me because I was no longer amusing. I hadn't described everything that happened. There are things I can't remember. In fact, I have things that happened that are too gruesome and disturbing to even tell. I've spent years trying to suppress it. After this experience, 
when I do remember the details, I'm traumatized. As I lay on the ground, my tormentors swarmed me. A voice emerged from my chest. It sounded like me, but it wasn't a thought, and it said, pray to God. I remember thinking, why? What a stupid idea. That doesn't work. What a cop-out. Lying here in this darkness, surrounded by these creatures, I don't believe in God. It's utterly hopeless, and I'm beyond any possible help, whether I believe in God or not. I don't pray, period. A second time, the voice spoke to me and said, pray to God. It was recognizably my voice, but I had not spoken. Pray how? Pray what? I hadn't prayed in my entire life. I didn't know how to pray. The voice said it again, pray to God. I want to read to you in John chapter 10, verse 27, and I'm going to show you something that's going to help you. Jesus said, my sheep, that's us, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Now, here's what I want you to see. So interesting, so amazing. He says he heard a voice in his heart. He didn't say his head. He said in his heart, and he said the voice sounded like himself. And the voice said, pray. He said, it wasn't my thought, but it was my voice. Now, here's something that's so amazing. I just read to you where Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Listen, if you've ever wondered, I wonder why God doesn't speak to me. He is speaking to you. Lots of times you don't recognize it because it sounds like you. Whenever you hear that voice in your heart, now, not your head, Okay, your heart. You know the difference. I know the difference. When you hear that voice in your heart that says, hey, I want you to pray, or hey, I want you to love, or hey, I want you to forgive, or hey, why don't you read your Bible, or hey, why don't you help your neighbor? You know what it is. It's the voice of God. But it sounds like your voice. And so you think, well, that must be me, when you know darn good and well it isn't you, right? When that voice says, hey, I want you to help somebody, you think, now nah, that must just be me. I don't want to help anybody. You're hearing the voice of God. He heard the voice of God, and here's what it said. It said, pray, and he says, uh, I, I, I can't pray. All right, let, let me continue. <clears throat> it said, pray to God. I can't pray. Howard struggled to remember any prayers from childhood. Let me stop there again. Childhood. The things he learned about Jesus from a child, he calls on. That's why it's so important that we teach him. Look what it says in Luke 18, 15. One day, some parents brought little children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Jesus called the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me and don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter into it. Can I just lodge that seed into your heart one more time? How important kids' ministry is. How important youth ministry is. And that both of these gentlemen recall their training and what they learned when they were children. So listen to what he does. I struggle to remember prayers from childhood. Anything with God's name in it. So I just pieced together all I could think of, and this is what he prays. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. For purple mountains majesty, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Deliver us from evil, one nation under God. God bless America. <laughs> Isn't that good? Now, listen to this. He prayed part of the 23rd Psalm. He quoted America the Beautiful, 
the battle hymn of the Republic, the Lord's Prayer, and the Pledge of Allegiance. Let me read it to you one more time. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, for purple mountain's majesty. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Deliver us from evil. One nation under God. God bless America. Amen. (laughs) To my amazement, the cruel, merciless beings tearing the life out of me were incited to rage by my ragtag prayer. It was as if I were throwing boiling oil on them. They screamed at me. There is no God. Who do you think you're talking to? No one can hear you. Now we're really going to hurt you. They spoke in obscene language and blasphemy. But at the same time, they were backing away. I could still hear their voices in the utter darkness, but they were getting more and more distant, and I realized that saying things about God was driving them away. I became more forceful with what I was saying. Now, I want want you to see two amazing things in this. As he began to pray, he said it was like throwing boiling oil on these beings, and they begin to rage, but they begin to back up. Can I just encourage you, Christian? Can I just encourage you? Your prayers are powerful. And when you pray and when you talk about God, it drives back darkness in your life. It drives back oppression. It puts depression on its heels. Now, here's the, now I'm going to read a verse, but here's the next thing I want you to see that's so amazing. They begin to rage at him that he was stupid and God wasn't listening. Every one of you in this room have heard that. Every one of you in this room have prayed, and when you got done praying, you heard, what an idiot. Are you, do you think God's listening to you? Haven't you? I've prayed it and heard it. You've prayed it and heard it. That's darkness, folks, wanting you to shut up. That's darkness wanting you to stop praying because when you pray and when you talk about God, it drives them off of your life and brings in light. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. He says, commit yourself wholeheartedly to these words of mine, talking about the Bible. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Now, he's making a reference to Jewish men. They would take scripture and wrap it up and and leather and wrap it around their wrists, and then they would put it in a little box, and they would wear it on their forehead. It was called a frontlet, and that's what he's making reference to. Let me continue to read and listen to what he says. Here's what he says that I want you to see. Teach the scripture to your children Talk about the Word. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you're getting up. Now, here's what I want you to see. That's such a nugget of truth. Listen, when you pray, the devil hates it, and he's going to do everything he can to shut you up. On Wednesday morning, as a staff across the street in our offices, we have prayer. We have prayer every Wednesday morning. And we pray over Grand Zero, and we pray over Power Kids, and we pray over you. And every Wednesday morning when we pray, the phone rings 30 times. People pull up and knock on the door. People come by who never come by. People who are driving across the state pull in and knock on the door. And I'm not mad at any of those people. But you know why they're doing it? Because the devil wants us to stop praying. 
Anytime you pray, you always find out. It doesn't. If the phone rings, your cell phone goes off, somebody wants to talk to you, you're always disturbed when you pray because the enemy hates it when you pray because it drives him off of your life. And then he wants to show up and tell you, hey, you don't need to pray. Listen to me. This is so important. When you have lunch today, talk about the goodness of God. When you spend the afternoon together, talk about the things of God. It says when we lie down, when we get up, when we sit around the table. Listen, I'm guilty as anybody, okay? I can talk about meaningless, unimportant things. I can complain. I can gripe. I'm, I'm so good at it. I, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm so good at it. My, my wife will say, well, you're being negative, Nancy, okay? Isn't that terrible that she would say that to me, right? You're being negative. You know what she wants me to do? Stop it. I want to encourage you this morning, right? When you talk about the goodness of God to your children, when you sit at your table and tell your grandkids, hey, God's taking such good care of us and he's going to take care of you, right? When you do that, you know what happens? You're driving back darkness in your life. You're driving back the enemy in your family and God can move and have his way. Let me continue to read. I knew they were far away but could return and I was alone. I felt painful, alive in this horrible place. I had no idea where I was, and I was alone in this darkness without time and without measure. That's eternity. I thought about what I'd done. Now, don't miss this. I thought about what I had done. He's talking about his life. All my life, I had thought that hard work was what counted. My life was devoted to building a monument to my ego. My family my sculptures, he's an artist, my paintings, my house, my gardens, my fame, my illusion of power were all an extension of my ego. All of those things were now gone and they did not matter. All of my life, I fought an undertone of anxiety and fear and dread. If I could become famous, I could defeat powerlessness and maybe beat death. I did not belong to any clubs or organizations. I was narcissistic in my appearance. I didn't like myself or anyone else either. How ironic it was to end up in the sewer of the universe with people who fed off the pain of others. I'd had little compassion for others. It dawned on me that I was not unlike the miserable creatures that were tormenting me. With the little strength I had left to resist becoming a creature in darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth, I wasn't far from becoming just like them. As I lay in the darkness, feeling myself slipping away into hopelessness, a song I heard from childhood came into my head. And it was not we're champions of the world. Here's what he said. Jesus loves me, da-da-da. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I had not heard that song since childhood, and it came into my head, and all I could remember was Jesus loves me. 
these three words tapped into the longing and ignited a spark of hope within me. I wanted it to be true that Jesus loved me. I didn't know how to express what I wanted and needed, but with every bit of my strength, I yelled into the darkness, Jesus, save me. I have never meant anything more strongly in my life. Far off in the darkness, I saw a pinpoint of light like the faintest star in the sky. The star was rapidly getting brighter and brighter, and it became more intense and more beautiful than anything I've ever seen. It was brighter than the sun, brighter than a flash of lightning. Soon the light was upon me. I knew that while it was indescribably brilliant, it wasn't just light. It was a living, luminous being surrounded by an oval of radiance. The brilliant intensity of the light penetrated my body. Ecstasy swept away my agony. Tangible hands and arms gently embraced me and lifted me up. I slowly rose up into the presence of the light, and the torn pieces of my soul were miraculously healed before my eyes. This loving, luminous being who embraced me knew me immediately. He knew me better than I knew myself. He was knowledge and wisdom. I knew that he knew everything about me. I was unconditionally loved and accepted. He was king of kings, Lord of lords. He was Christ Jesus the Savior. Jesus does love me, I thought. I called out to Jesus and he came to rescue me. Now, you don't have to go to hell for that to happen. Amen? You can call on him today, tonight, tomorrow. You can call on Jesus, and he will rescue you. Amen. That, come on, amen. Come on, amen. <laughs> I cried and cried for joy, and the tears kept coming. Joy upon joy billowed through me. He held me and caressed me like a mother with her baby, like a father with a lost son. I cried the tears of a lifetime, tears of hopelessness, tears of shame over my unbelief. I cried tears of joy and salvation. I cried like a baby and couldn't stop crying. He held me and stroked my back. We rose upward gradually at first, and then like a rocket, we shot out of the dark and detestable hell. We traversed an enormous distance, light years, although very little time elapsed. In the distance, far, far away, I saw a vast area of illumination that looked like a galaxy. In the center was an enormous bright light. Outside the center were countless millions of spheres of light flying about, entering and leaving this great light. While moving toward the presence of the light and the center of all being, the one I was beyond thought. It was not possible to articulate what occurred. Simply, I knew this. God loved me. Jesus loved me. And that God is love. As he looked across space to this great city of light, Howard said he had a life review in the presence of Jesus and several angels. 
miraculously, several years later, he left his career as a professor, gave up being chairman of the art department, gave up his tenure, and became a pastor. What would motivate an avowed atheist professor to give up tenure, give up his life's work to make up a story about visiting hell? The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 21, simply says this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you bow your head with me and let me pray for you? Father God, I want to thank you this morning for your love. And I want to thank you. I know, Lord, it's never been your heart for us to be separated from you in hell. It's never been your plan. It's never been your purpose. Jesus, thank you for paying my debt. Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth, hanging on a cross, and dying in my place. 10,000 lifetimes would not be enough for me to pay for the debt of my sin. You paid it for me. Thank you, Jesus, for taking my sin, my brokenness, my rebellion, my hurt, and saving me. Jesus, thank you for saving me. If you're a Christian in the house this morning, I'd love for you just to say that to yourself this morning so you can hear it. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Before we dismiss, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's just very simple. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, I'm going to pray a simple prayer and give you an opportunity to receive Christ. I love what he prayed in that prayer. Jesus, save me, and he did. You can cry out, Jesus, save me, and he will. So join me and repeat this prayer. Say, Father God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, paying my debt. Save me, Jesus. Change me. Fill me with your life. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. The Lord's good, amen? Amen. amen. Would you all stand, please?